Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Today, we are going to talk all about the greatest off-ball players in NBA history. I guess not history. I guess we'll we'll keep it to the three-point era, and I'll caveat why in a little bit when we set up the criteria and then get into the names. But, boy, I, uh, I don't know what I've gotten myself into here. The last video I did for the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel was a video I've wanted to do for a long time. It was on player movement and sort of the power of motion and off-ball activity and all the counters that go into that. And in researching that, I just basically realized I'm down a rabbit hole. And the rabbit hole was looking at all these great off-ball players. Because, of course, that video focuses on movement, but there is a relationship that exists between movement and shooting and the threat of running away from the basket to catch the ball when you're open and how dangerous you are as a shooter. There's also concepts of off-ball value that weren't really touched in that video at all, like your spot-up shooting, that gravity or spacing effect that can come with that. How about running to the rim, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a larger world here around off-ball value on offense, and that's what I wanted to discuss today get into and because this is at least for me this this level of detail around off ball success is fertile ground there's a lot of fuzziness to sort out so watched a lot of film for this one here we go let's first lay out the criteria what do i mean in detail when i talk about value from off ball so first of all today the way to think about this exercise today is how much value is derived just from someone's off-ball game. How much value is derived just from someone's off-ball game? In other words, if we normalized their on-ball value, if we gave them all the same mediocre average or below average isolation offense or whatever it is, and we just completely ignored their defense, and then we tally up the value of that player based on all the off-ball skills I'm about to outline who's the best, who would be the best offensive player. You probably didn't hear it. The mic didn't pick it up, but my wife yelled from the other room. I don't know who would be. Uh, This is, this is the collateral damage of podcasting in your little office at home. So, okay, let's, let's talk about skills involved, uh, off ball players, off ball value. What are the actual skills involved? Well, the first one of course is movement. That's what the recent video was about, the history and evolution of movement, the players who do it well, and all the things that go into that, cuts, um, things like that. But there's even a few things that were only alluded to there, the ability to get deep position, seal someone on your back based on your movement. Like That activity off-ball creates a threat. It creates a target where basically no one else had to do anything, and you've created a threat or value. Okay, so that's movement. Then there's the ability to catch and shoot on the move that's related to that, things like your quickness of release and how accurate your shot is. And then, of course, the true test of accuracy with your shot for many players throughout history is the spot up. When you settle in a spot, whether you're picking and popping or you're just spacing the floor and sitting in the corner, when you get that kick out, when you get that pass, how accurate are you on draining those open shots. That creates sort of value over placement in and of itself. If the average player hits some of those threes at 35%, 39% good, 43% is even better. So that matters. That also matters in terms of how much attention defenses give you when it comes to things like spacing, pulling and tugging defenders out of the paint. So that all adds up to some inherent value. And then 
Next, you also have the concept of passing. Because while most passing is on the move, you also have the idea of extra passing, dynamic passing. When I come off that screen and I get a little attention and the defense breaks down because of my movement, because they're reacting to my threat where I'm open, or if I back cut, can I make those extra passes to the open men for layups or kicks, kickouts? Can I pass on the move? Now, this is inherently a smaller component of off-ball offense than on-ball offense because passing is mostly about finding these openings that are created by all this off-ball activity. Back cuts and flares and slips and things like that. And passing, the other big one is you capitalize when you break down the defense with your ball handling, which is just more common in basketball. So passing is typically a smaller component here, and you'll notice that relatively uh, a relatively small number of these great players also differentiated with passing, but it's relevant. It's another thing. Speaking of another thing that's relevant that rarely gets discussed is role finishing as a role man. This, just like pick and pop, you're off ball and you're interacting and and stretching or challenging the defense with your shooting value. If you have great role gravity and you're incredibly athletic, that's where this shows up. So your role finishing, related to role finishing is offensive rebounding. That is an off-ball skill. You do not need the basketball to clean up other people's misses, get in great position for putbacks, and oftentimes there's movement and jostling and skill related to getting that inside position and having a nose for the ball. So those are our criteria that we're going to work off today. Uh, Recapping them really quickly, again, it's movement, catch-and-shoot, catch-and-shoot accuracy, the spacing uh, and gravity that comes from the threat of score, uh, shooting, depending on how good you are at shooting in those categories. Dynamic extra passing. Did, I, did that come out right? Dynamic. It's a mouthful. And a role finishing and offensive rebounding. There's also a few things to clarify. I, told, I warned you at the top that I went down a rabbit hole in this exercise, and there's a lot of places to kind of try to draw lines and rein this thing in. So... When does off-ball end? Like, when do you go from on-ball to off-ball? Is there a certain number of dribbles? Is it an assisted field goal or something like that? Here's the idea. Here's the simplest way I can kind of draw a line in the sand. And it is a little arbitrary. We're we're arbitrarily drawing lines at some point. But here's where I draw the line. It has nothing to do with dribbles. It has to do with the value you create from the off-ball activity itself. So if you move and run to a place and create an opening, and then you take one little dribble because you already have an opening and you fake out a man or you move to a different spot, that's still off-ball. If you are standing by yourself and other things happen and someone throws it to you and you catch and shoot and essentially your man you know, had to take a step in and then recover, that, that's off-ball. All that stuff is off-ball. If you're diving and you're ahead of the guy behind you and you come off a screen and you get into the paint and you catch it and you throw a little touch pass or kick it back out, and the defense collapse to react to your cut, that's off-ball. Even a subtle one, like in the post, if you post up and you catch it, and then you go into your moves, that's your post game. But if you're working for position in the post, and you end up getting a front or a spin, or you seal a guy, you feel it, and you drop your leg, and you seal a guy, and you get a wide-open catch for a layup or dunk, that's off-ball. That has nothing to do with your sort of on-ball isolation, pick and roll, all those skills, that's the line we're trying to draw here. A caveat for me in that vein, in this exercise, is that transition doesn't really count. Everything in transition is kind of off-ball. You have a guy running the break and people are theoretically open, usually they're odd man, three on two, four on three. So this concept is really more about the half court. Now, as I said, why it's a little arbitrary dividing it this way. Why do we even care about off-ball value? Why does it matter? Scalability. The ability to fit on better and better teams. The concept of team structure. Understanding where people have skills that can excel that don't require the one ball and how they can fit together. We saw this in Golden State with you know three of the greatest shooters ever and how that just keeps getting better and better and better. And so it gives us a better way to talk about context for stars and role players if we can understand the value someone's creating with their off-ball skills. 
That's the idea. Now, with that said, it's still a really challenging exercise, in large part because we have limited data. There's not a lot of quantitative numbers. I mean, we can look at someone's shooting numbers, so we have an idea of how good they are as a shooter and an outside shooter, the volume of those shots for some concept of spacing and gravity. And then I think the other big one we have, which is 20-something years old in the play-by-play era, is assisted field goal percentage numbers. So meaning the percentage of your field goals that were assisted from different spots on the court, that gives us a proxy of how much you're creating yourself and how much you have off ball. Even more recently, we can look at certain synergy play type categories, isolation or post up or whatever. Those don't always draw the lines in the exact same way I outlined, but that's recent data as well. And of course, the three point line goes back to 1980. And before that, you know, good luck. So it's a lot of film. And one of the things I did when watching film was actually try to count in samples. You know, if I watch a couple games or a couple clips or whatever to say, hey, in these 50 or 100 plays, how many of them were on ball and how many of them were off ball? And this gives us an idea of the degree to which players are already creating value based on off ball games. So obviously you're not going to be on this list if you have a really low frequency of off ball scoring. But that doesn't mean everything has to be based on exactly what happened because then we're penalizing players who have great isolation games. So if your off-ball game is a B plus and your isolation game is an A and you end up using isolation 70% of the time, that doesn't mean that you wouldn't be a really good off-ball player. So that's part of the exercise. That's part of the film study and looking at shooting and trying to understand what happens in different, you know, maybe different lineups a guy gets to play off ball more. And so what you should see is you should see the assisted numbers go up, but you should also see the value remain if he's really skilled as an off ball player. An interesting thought experiment in that vein might be if you think about any of these scores, these big time scores, and they only had their off ball play, what are we talking about? Are we talking about a 23 point per game score, a 20 point per game score? Does the efficiency change? These are the kinds of things, the, the mental thought exercises uh, that I think are going to shape this discussion. Okay, that's enough of my usual long-windedness. Let's get into the top, the all-time, top, I don't know why I keep saying all-time, three-point era. Why the three-point era? Frankly, I don't think the old-timers who were great off-ball had the ability to have the same value without the three-point shot. It just wasn't enough of their game, and probably for good reason. So Rick Barry is someone I call out in the video because his off-ball instincts, the violence and sharpness of his cuts and his reads, were really, 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 really good. This is a guy who debuted in 1966. And he played briefly with a more spaced-out ABA that had the three-point line. But even then, I, I think if you said, hey, you got to take away all of Rick's ISO stuff and his little off-the-dribble probing things and stuff like that, are you left with an all-star offensive player? I'm not sure. And that's kind of the cutoff for the top 10 here. I think the guys at the back of my top 10 in the list I'm going to present are on offense, just off-ball, kind of like all-star-ish, borderline or on the on the wrong side of being an all-star. And so maybe they would maybe make the top 10 or something, but it just felt easier easier to scrap it for me. Some old-timer honorable mentions, along with Rick Barry, Jerry West, who did a tremendous amount of work on ball. He was just really quick, really quick release, really quick decision-making. John Havlicek is another guy I called out in the video. He just used to run around a lot, but similar to West, had a decent amount of you know like dribbling and probing for little pull-ups. Lou Hudson is another guy, a lesser-known name, who did a lot of work moving off ball as sort of a pre-archetype to what that would look like in the 80s and early 90s once the three-point line came into play. So those were some old guys that I wanted to call out. Let's really quickly get to the honorable mentions for me on this list. I did look at a number of players, both on film and statistically, to get here. And before we get to sort of the top 10 or so, a few honorable mention call-outs. Chris Mullen, he was a really good shooter 
I think more when he was really uh, at his best in Golden State, those big volume scoring years, the Dream Team 1992, there's more on ball than you think. There's more patience using his body, using his size, uh, using the little handle, getting to pull-ups, getting all the way to the rim. You know, it's a little bit more of a balance between off-ball and on-ball, even though he's A, such a good shooter, and B, a guy, especially later in his career, we associate with coming off screens a lot and things like that. So he was someone who was reasonably close for me to being in this discussion. Uh, Kevin Durant is another guy. If you look at Kevin Durant, the value of his shooting, the fact that he can play four and space the court, he has some movement little back cuts he's always been comfortable with, and then a lot of like floating, probing, coming off pin downs and curls. That's both in Oklahoma City and a little bit in Golden State as well. But again, the spirit of the exercise, I think if you normalized his isolation game, would he be better in the off-ball component than the 10 guys I'm going to mention? I didn't think so. Now, here's an interesting name that I wanted to call out because was kind of in this ballpark, although I think he disappears to a certain degree in the playoffs. I think what he does isn't good enough in the playoffs to get me to where I need to be, but that's Ryan Anderson. I know, it it surprised me too. Ryan Anderson, back in the day, here's the thing. He scored like 20 points per 75. He had positive scoring efficiency. He shot a huge number of threes. He shot threes very well, so spot up pick and pop, just like creep out, sometimes even coming off screens, even though he's basically a stretch big. And the thing about Ryan Anderson is like at this period in time, 2011, 2012, 2013, his entire perimeter offense was set up off ball. All of it. In 2012, 98% of his shots outside 15 feet were assisted. I mean, this is This is actually the highest all-time mark in the 20-something years we've had data. It's tied for the highest or something like that when you look at assisted field goal percentage outside 15 feet. And so in that case, we actually don't have to do really any mental exercises to figure out how good he is on offense based on his off-ball game because basically his entire offense was off-ball game without hyperbole. He didn't really offensive rebound or pass at all. He was not a good passer. Uh, And so you lose some of that value. And I think little things like that kept him out of really being someone who could, you know, crack the top 10 of this discussion. But a a guy I wanted to shout out nonetheless. There are going to be other bigger names and well-known perimeter shooters. Kevin Martin, for instance, is one who I just didn't think had enough off-ball value because they probably did way more on-ball stuff than you remember. Probably had more pull-ups, little crossovers, step-back moves things like that. Just wanted to get that out there because I'm sure many people will say, what about this guy? Still, by the way, feel free to say, what about this guy? If you don't hear him mentioned, I may have overlooked someone, but there are a number of players like that, and I'm not going to rattle off 30 names or whatever right now. A few more names, though, for the ones that, to me, were really close to making the top 10, and even, I would say, a couple of these guys I consider, they might as well be, you could argue them at 8, 9, 10 or whatever. It's a very fluid list. So one guy is Kyle Korver. And Kyle Korver is another one of these players who a huge amount of his game, like all of his game, is off-ball activity. And he had a great feel not only for little pockets to cut into and things like that, but I loved his motor. He just constantly moved and moved and moved, and he moved with great purpose and speed. And so I think of the quintessential Kyle Korver cut as like sprinting as hard as you can into an open space in the corner and then catching and squaring your body while you're on the fly. Uh, Just to put it in perspective, 2014 to 2016, his big years in Atlanta, 96, 97% of his perimeter offense came off assisted field goals. It's basically his entire game. And he was a better passer as well than you think in those situations. He had a better feel for, I'm going to catch and really quickly shoot, and I'm going to catch and really quickly pass. I don't know. 
I, I, I don't have enough information, haven't gone deep enough to say whether I would call him an all-star in the year he made the all-star team in Atlanta, I think was 2015. But I love the idea. I love the idea of that player, that type of player having a certain amount of value that on offense is all-star-ish. The, the accuracy of shooting, of course, with him off the charts, 47% from three from 2013 to 2015 on about nine threes per 100. And all that was good enough for me to say, this guy might be right there. As I said, it's it's maybe he's a close close to an all-star with his off-ball value. And that's kind of the range to get into the top 10. The other guy who was really close, who could be at the back of this top 10, is a big man, and it's Amari Stoudemire. And these guys were harder for me, the big men, because you're thinking about different dimensions. Some of them also have the spacing and the shooting, and some of them, heck, move off screens. We'll, we'll talk about a few in a minute. But the role gravity, the role skill, the explosiveness, not just in clear situations, not just a runway where you only have one guy coming over at the last second. The thing about Amari and the synergy with Nash is if he just had a little space to catch anywhere within 12, 10 feet, the paint area, things like that, he could use his finishing skills that included not only that athleticism and the big hands, but the physical strength and quickness of things like a hop step. You catch and you one dribble, boom, into an open area, and you go up and you get fouled or you get buckets. Of course, the other thing a great athletic big has is offensive rebounding. Now, Omari wasn't a great offensive rebounder, but part of this is that if you don't find him on those moves when he cuts and hops and jumps in behind you, he's good enough and athletic enough to go get it and then score on the putback. And that, of course, has value. Was it enough value to me that if I said you take away sort of the post-game or isolationness game of Amari Stoudemire, would he be an all-star on offense? I didn't think so. But I, I can see it. I mean, I, I think any of these last few guys I mentioned could be 8th, ninth, or 10th on this list. The fun thing about this topic is that it is unexplored enough that you're either thinking, I'm crazy, I've had the crazy Kool-Aid this week, I've been in quarantine too long, or you're thinking, whoa, as I did, like, hmm, I never thought about that haven't been there yet. It's all very new. So this is something, of course, that movement video is something I wanted to do for years. And these ideas have been part of my work for years, but I've never really done a full deep dive and tried to quantify them and things like that. And that's the purpose of this exercise in this list today. And so people can yell at me online. It's the other purpose of, of making lists. Number 10 to me is Dirk Nowitzki, specifically a young Dirk Nowitzki. Not that he's terrible off-ball when he's older or anything like that, but I think that was probably the pinnacle of his off-ball value. When he was in Dallas, you can see it in those years. When <laughs> I just said when he was in Dallas. Was Dirk Nowitzki ever not in Dallas? When he was with Steve Nash, that's what I meant to say. 2001 to 2004. And this is a great case of having that pick-and-pop game that I discussed, that shooting element that I alluded to. Now, how much of his offense back then was on ball versus off ball? Based on the possessions I sampled, I would say about half of it was on ball, half of it was off ball. His assisted scoring numbers on shots outside 15 feet were around 80% in these years, maybe up near 85%. So not quite Ryan Anderson. He still had some, you know, post-high post isolation. He would still give you the business. He would he didn't just suddenly become you know, a great mid-post scorer overnight when Steve Nash left. He had that. But a lot of this was the pick-and-pop game. He even had a little pick-and-roll game, mostly because his athleticism, he was so big, and that size-athleticism combo made him a relatively decent role finisher in a lot of angles and situations. The other thing about Dirk here, and people, you know, who are familiar with his game know this, he had this later in his career as well, but he would use movement 
he would come off screens. He almost came off pin downs at times. He would slide into little areas in the paint, come off a, a, another guy and have his defender chasing him. And then he would use that advantage to finish or attack on a closeout or something like that. Even his closeout situations, instead of always taking the spot up jumper, he was very comfortable pump faking and then getting into a dribble or two or a full drive or something like that. So he's a great example of a guy who didn't have 75 or 80% of his offense come off ball. It was a little bit more of a split, but the off ball value there, I mean, if I wipe away his on ball skills and I say, hey, you know, just play like this all the time with your spotting up as a big man, you're a stretch four, sometimes you play the five, you shoot 40% from downtown, your pick and pop game, your pick and roll game. He wasn't a great offensive rebounder, wasn't a great passer, but I think this gets you right in that like borderline all-star offensive player. Certainly better than Ryan Anderson as an offensive player in my assessment. I should clarify because I have the note here, 38% from downtown in these years, about five to six threes per 100 back then. And remember, that is almost entirely off-ball action. Okay, number nine, sticking with the big men. I'm on a run of big men here, but they were painfully difficult to rank, especially these big men. I think when we get to some of the perimeter players in a second, even if there's fluidity in where you want to rank them in a list like this, I don't know, you know, five, eight, whatever, it's not a big deal, but I think they're easier to compare. The big man here, the next one on my list, number nine, Anthony Davis. I think based on conversations I've had, this is going to come as a surprise to a lot of people. A huge amount of Anthony Davis's game has been off ball. He has a decent post-ISO on-ball game. He has a set of scoring skills, either face the hoop or back to the basket, that's impressive enough that we probably don't realize how much of his game has been off-ball in the last few years, even as he's sort of elevated to his peak now in the last couple seasons. Specifically, he has all-time level lob gravity, both in the pick-and-roll and off the spin, that move where he feels you overplaying or fronting, and spins back door, an incredible catch radius on those kinds of jumps and cuts. He also floats into little gaps in the paint for catchers, floaters. Uh, he'll he'll flare out for jumpers and back to the three-point line, and occasionally even comes off screens because his his outside shot is decent enough that he can do that. Now the, now the downside with him is that he's more like a low 30s three-point shooter, 33 34%, whatever it is, than a 40s guy, so you don't get the same kind of spacing or gravity pull on those actions. But he's also a good offensive rebounder. It's been a 3 to 5% ahead of the league in offensive rebounding percentage for the last couple years. And so you get the combination of great role man, good popper, decent big man spacer with his spot up and catch and shoot, and the offensive putback, that, that kind of gravity around the rim. Let's put some numbers on it, in case you're wondering. 70% of his offense at the hoop in 2016, it's, it's around this. It's 70 75%, 65% in the last five seasons at the hoop has been assisted. And that is way ahead of league average on those figures. That's not up near the guys who are solely rim runners and lob finishers like that, like Clint Capella is up in the 80s. Nene was up in the 80s, mid-80s for one year. But I mean, 65 to 75%, that's a lot of your offense at the hoop coming from being set up. That doesn't even include putbacks, which changes the number a little bit as well. Without putbacks, it's 70 to 79% in the last few years. Now, what about his perimeter game? All of that catch-and-shoot stuff, yes, he can get a crossover and a pull-up. He has that fade away from 15 feet. He has that in his game. But all of his jumpers outside 15 feet, including his three-point shots, again, 80 to 85% of these are assisted. And if you watch a lot of his games, especially in New Orleans, I think it's a little lower from what I've seen in L.A., but especially in New Orleans, a huge amount of his game is this off-ball stuff. At number eight, I think I'm at eight. I think that's right. 
J.J. Redick. Now, this guy, I mean, his entire game is off ball. The numbers on his assisted field goal percentage going back five, six, seven years, 90-something percent of his outside shots are assisted. And he is one of the guys in the modern game, the last 20 years, uh, not that the modern game is the last 20 years, but just in the last 20 years, as spacing has improved and as the three-point shot has improved, who is really an artist and a master of moving without the basketball. He's not the greatest athlete, so he doesn't have any every counter in the book, and his size doesn't always help and permit things on the end of the finish that you'd want either going to the rim or drawing contact or whatever. But he is an incredible shooter, and he's a great mover without the basketball, so he has some gravity there. Uh, his shooting, let's put in perspective his shooting. He peaked from 2014 to 2017. He took about 10 threes per 100 at 44% from downtown. This is one of the greatest shooting stretches from three-point land in NBA history, full stop. Doesn't matter who you include. A very good offensive player who has played a solid role on good offenses. Of course, on those Clippers teams. Where in the regular season, his scoring was like 20 points per 75, 22 points per 75 on true shooting that was like 8 or 9% ahead of the league average. Now the thing is, I think that overstates his capacity as a player. Because when he gets to the postseason, those numbers go down. They're more like 17 to 19 points per 75, and the efficiency goes down a couple percentage points. The three-point shooting goes down. Now, how much of that is poor shooting luck? Um, I don't know, but I can say from looking at the film that it doesn't look quite as easy, and I account for that. I think if he could carry over some of that success or even improve as other players do in the postseason, he would be much higher on this list, and we'd think of him as a much better offensive player. As it is, a good offensive player who probably some of those athletic limitations prevent him from sort of exerting his will or coming up with a lot of great counters in the postseason. But nonetheless, this is entirely, I mean, his entire game is this off-ball wizardry of just constantly running around screens over and over and over again. Number seven, this guy was a little tricky, and it's Peja Stojakovic. And he's tricky for a couple reasons. He's a little bit more on-ball than you probably remember. Had a little bit more of a crossover game, get into a pull-up, he could turn his back to you briefly and get into that fadeaway. In his off-ball game, he had some back cuts to the rim, but he wasn't like a, you know, he didn't have the full package. He didn't chase you around into oblivion like some of the players ahead of him on this list. And he was a great shooter. Peja, you know, of course, well-known for having a couple seasons in the low and mid-40s from downtown. But again, when he got to the postseason... I mean, that 41% from three or whatever, from 2001 to 2005, that dropped down to like 35, 36%. He was about 35.5% during those years in the playoffs in Sacramento. And to me, that's not entirely shooting luck. You know, I'm trying to look at film and understand, can a guy get what he wants as easily as possible? And I don't think just on his movement patterns, Pedro was as crisp. Like he, I don't even think he was as talented with his movement patterns as J.J. Redick, but he was big. Uh, he did have a little back cut in you. Really good catch-and-shoot guy. Of course, spot up and spacing really good. So the totality of Peja as a player, given that he was a predominantly off-ball talent, that gets you to a pretty good place in the first place. His 2004 season, his best season, 23 points per 75 plus 11% true shooting in the playoffs. The numbers are lower, 2003 to 2005. He's around, you know, 21 and plus four, things like that. Still comes out in my more advanced metrics in those playoff runs pretty well. He still looks like, okay, this is a all-star-ish offensive player. His scoring value looks good. And that's part of why I think the totality of Peja is part of why I have him here ahead of all these other guys and really at the back of a group that starts to get really solid. Like the remainder of the guys, now we're getting into the 
the greats. Let's hop ahead, speaking of the remainder of guys, to number six, and that's Richard Hamilton, Rip. Rip was heavily off-ball, and he actually became more and more off-ball later in Detroit in those best offensive years, and those are the ones I want to focus on, 2006 to 2008. He was fantastic at change of speed, coming off screens, knowing what angle to take, how to slow down, then speed up to run a guy into a screen, lots of action off of curls or loops. And the thing about Rip is that he had so many two-point shots as part of this arsenal. He didn't take five, seven, ten threes per 100 possessions when he was out there. He only took two or three at his peak. These late years in Detroit, 2006, 2007, 2008, he was very selective about that. He, he just kind of lived in the mid-range more, and he would his probably his most dangerous move was coming off a pin down or floppy action where he runs off a couple screens and curling inward. And that's where that change of direction speed, the ability to sprint and round a player almost like he's rounding third base in baseball, got him enough of an edge where he could lean in and hit a little mid-range shot at high percentage. I think it dings his overall efficiency because he doesn't have the three-point shot and so he loses a little of that value. But I mean... The change of speed combined with using the hands to set you up on screens was at the A level from Richard Hamilton. I could only slip the he only he got cut down to one one little clip and reference in the in the movement video. Part of that though is because he wasn't an incredible change of direction cutter. He wouldn't hit you with the stuff and get back door and break your ankles and things like that. But all that circling, floating, all that other stuff was good. He did have some face-up ISO game that was probably a little bit more prevalent than you realize. But as I said, 2006, 2007, 2008, about 80 to 90% of his perimeter shots were assisted. And he was way above league average on some of his shots at the rim, suggesting, you know, his movement takes him there for layups or he gets to pockets or things like that. 60 to 70% uh, on shots at the rim that were assisted. And so then when you plug that in, how do, how do you view Richard Hamilton? Is he kind of like an all-star-ish level offensive player? To me, that's about right. In the playoffs, uh, certainly averaged you know 23 to 24 points per 75 in this stretch. Again, the challenge with him is the efficiency. The efficiency was always right around league average or maybe just a little bit above league average. Kind of like Kyle Korver, he had decent feel for passing off of these actions as well which gives him a little bit more value. I mean, I think the way to think of Rip in these years is whatever you think of him, most of that comes from his off-ball game. Not all of it, but most of it. And I keep talking about percentage of assisted field goals at the rim, meaning you know, how many of your field goals came off assists. If he's around 60% at the rim, that suggests some isolation, some breakdown, some ability to get to the cup or get fouled on his own, which he had. By comparison, Clay Thompson is closer to 80% on his shots at the rim, meaning 80% of his field goals are assisted at the rim. And that's near the max. Like I said, you can't really get big men, the highest big men of all time, the highest uh, values of all time are in the mid and low 80s. So Clay Thompson is an example of a guy whose game is basically entirely off ball. There's some occasional drives and post-ups and things like that, but whatever you think of him as an offensive player, that is predominantly from his off-ball game, his outside shots as well are like 90% assisted. And I won't belabor Clay because I just did, if you want more details, I just did a podcast detailing his entire game. But from that podcast, one of the things we discussed was the idea that when Curry goes off the court when Durant goes off the court and Clay operates more like a number one his volume goes up his efficiency goes down but part of that is because these assisted percentages don't change he still plays a lot of the same way he plays almost entirely the same way and so it's just a matter of how much can you try to squeak out of your off-ball movement and I think that's a that's stat the fact that his volume goes up his efficiency goes down, and his percentage of assisted field goals don't really change from the outside, and they barely change at the rim. Taken together, 
what that says to me is there's a limit on how open he can get from his movement. There's a limit on the volume of looks he can create at will from off-ball movement, especially when you tilt the defense toward him, becomes the focus of the defense because the other stars go off the court. Notice that's not damning for me because I'm ranking him here as the fifth best off-ball player of the three-point era, and he could have been fourth easily. I mean, I went back and forth on four and five before deciding on the order for recording. He's right in this range, and number four is Ray Allen, the other guy who was in that podcast last week talking about the comparison between these players and getting into some of their off-ball movement. Allen, as is pointed out in the movement video on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel this week, he used his hands wonderfully. And he had a lot of counters. He had a great feel for small little pieces of footwork. Like one of the clips I included, there were a number of them, so I wanted to get one in there, was as he's coming out to the perimeter to come off a screen, he circles back to come around to the other side of the screen. But it all happens in small space. It's all within like a six or seven foot radius. He just gets to the other side of the screen. He was good at fading off of screens to toe up behind the three-point line. And so when you see something like that 2013 shot in the finals, famously, yes, it's an extreme example because he's sprinting backwards with five seconds left. But that kind of backward movement where he toes up just behind the line, that's been part of his off-ball game for years. That's part of this talent, this wonderful set of skills that this podcast and that video are highlighting. And so Allen would set you up in different directions. Uh, he was wonderful at adjusting based on how you go- went off screens, really good with the handwork, and he had some back cuts to his game as well. The one thing about Allen that has him down here instead of at the very top, it's going to be, I guess, three guys left, is his work getting to the rim, getting a few extra free throws, things like that, even some of the three-point stuff is more off the dribble than we think. And I discussed this, so again, I won't go into great detail. I'll push you back to point you back to the last episode. But he did use that more. And so if I take that away, is his off-ball game better than Clay's? How different are they as shooters? I think it's you could flip a coin for me. By the way, I think at this point in the list, we are talking about strong all-star players just from their off-ball game on offense. Like sturdy all-star type offensive value and so number three pushes it even further and he was a guy who when I added everything up kept moving up and up the list for me because I think you could make an argument that he's at the least a strong all-star if he plays like this on offense if not maybe bleeding into an all-NBA player on offense and that's Larry Bird and the big thing for Larry Bird of course is the passing Well, I should say passing and offensive rebounding. Like he was a very good offensive rebounder, a positive offensive rebounder by rebounding percentage despite playing next to two other big men sometime. And you can see it on the film, really good at using position to try to set up his post, but then he would slip, he would get behind someone, and he would bang and really seal with his backside to get offensive rebounds and putbacks. And so you're adding a lot of value with the offensive rebounding and then the passing. Bird was arguably a better dynamic passer than he was an on-ball sort of traditional passer. So he had good post-passing, and he had good transition or or pick-and-roll. You know, he could turn and face and throw good passes. But his best passes were, by and large, on the move, in dynamic situations, on the roll. Um, Little touch passes, getting downhill off a curl, and then taking one dribble and throwing it over the side of his ear, no look to the roll man for a layup. And then a good percentage of his scoring arsenal was off ball. So he already had the hand discard techniques off the ball, setting people up. He would set you up for flare outs, you know, where he could, uh, I I show a clip of this where he kind of moves you in and then retreats backwards to the three-point line. But he had back doors, he had loop cuts, he would you know, come across the paint, catch and hit a little floater, a um, lot of catch up, popping, catch up, popping, let me try that again, catch and shoot or pick and popping 
Uh, his release was a little slow, but he had a lot of these. And he was very active off the basketball, looking for seals, looking for slips, looking, looking for position down low. So you get the passing, you get the rebounding. The scoring, just in general, we're talking in this period, you know, 24 to 26 points per 75, plus 5, plus 6% efficiency, things like that in the playoffs. And then from 1985 to 1987, he was 41.5% from downtown on 3 per 100. He only took 3 per 100 because they didn't take many back then. But just his spot-up game, you could play him at the 4 and space out. I think the totality of everything. And as I said, this is a challenging exercise, but this was kind of the easiest way for me to think about it. Even if I take away his post-up game, and even if I take away his occasional you know, little turn and face and dribble moves and things like that. This offensive player I just described is really good. What's left? Two guys. I think you know who they are now. The top two. Number two is Reggie Miller. He was, of course, one of the features in the video. Had a little bit more on-ball game than you remember, but, of course, uh, I do spend a decent amount of time detailing some of his mastery of his off-ball skills, and if we go back and look at the assisted shooting data, it was a little bit of a mix, but I just think even if you take away some of his on-ball game, are you talking about, I mean, could Bird be two here because of all the things I detailed? I don't know, but to me, you're talking about a high-level all-star offensive player and maybe even a little bit more just from all of the off-ball activity, the creation, the back cuts, um, the, the spacing and gravity, the attention that needs to be given to you there, it, it's enormous. If this is your first time encountering me in my Miller content, uh, of course, the previous podcast details extensively why I'm very high on him as an offensive player overall, why he's sort of like a strong all-NBA type player to me overall. And so you look at the majority of that coming from off-ball skills, and that's why he's near the top of this list for me. Number one on this list, it's a buzzkill, I know. Uh, but I think even if you take away his on-ball game, I still think Steph Curry would be the most valuable off-ball player ever. Would he be an MVP-level player without, without his on-ball game? Would he be a transcendent offensive talent the way he is right now? I don't think so. I don't think it would be quite that good. And so I don't think it's a runaway between any of these last few guys I've discussed. But again, you look at his skills off ball, you combine that with his shooting and his spacing and the things that happen when he just keeps running and running and running around the court. And I think you're talking about, at worst, an all-NBA type offensive player. But just to put some color on Steph, because I found the numbers really interesting, one of the reasons he is so great to me is that he does have a blend of on-ball and off-ball skills. And so if you go back to before Kevin Durant arrived, and this is probably why I ended up putting him at number one here, before Kevin Durant arrived, about 25 to 35% of Steph's offense at the rim was assisted. That's way on the low end. That's down near, you know, the all-time best, or like Damian Lillard this year was like 7%, or Westbrook or Steve Nash will be like, 15 or 20 percent or something like Chris Paul 15 percent because these are isolation masters who need to get to the rim based on their own work and Curry wasn't too far from that before Durant arrived similarly he's got the on ball pull up and working off screens and everything on the perimeter and so his perimeter shots weren't 60 or 70 percent or you know the ridiculous 90 percent of JJ Redick or anything like that they were more like 50%. And in 2016, you know, 51%. 2015, 52% of his shots from outside 15 feet were assisted. And again, that is more indicative of an isolation style player than a pure off-ball player. But what happens when Durant arrives? Well, when Durant arrives, they say, we have a guy who demands the ball a little bit more. That's part of his game. He's going to need some on-ball possessions. As a result, Curry's off ball more. And what happens? You see the numbers, the assisted numbers at the rim get closer to 50% instead of 25 or 35%. 
the assisted numbers on the perimeter go from, you know, 49, 52, things like that. They go up to 58%. In 2019, they were 66%. So you have these statistical indicators as well as other things that you can see that allow Steph to go more off ball. Does his value crater? Not at all. His value actually is kind of similar. It's not the, you know, the 2016 season has other things going on like him making 50% of his shots from 30 feet or whatever the incredible number is and that that degree of hot shooting, the league adapting. There are a lot of other things going on that make that season an historical regular season that's basically an outlier, but it's not that much of an outlier for him. His surrounding seasons, he had a stretch in 2018 for months that was very similar to his 2016 stretch. And again, he's doing this with more off-ball play. So I do think that part of his brilliance is that he has an on-ball game too that's often underrated by people, ironically, as well. But I think if you strip that away, he is so good moving without the ball, uh, quickness, speed, and then as a shooter, 42, 44, 45% from downtown, these kinds of numbers, on like 15 16, 17 threes per 100. So go back to that idea that like 60% of his offense is assisted without the ball. That still means he's getting about 11 three-point attempts off the ball. He's still at the very high end of three-point attempts for normal players just from his off-ball game. And he's hitting those things at high volume at like 43%. So yeah, probably not a hard sell that Steph Curry's good at shooting the basketball. Um, Hopefully this podcast wasn't a totally hard sell. If you want more information, stats, historical figures on these guys, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. You can support the show. You can sign up there. We have a community. We have historical database. And this week, there was a special cut just off Steph Curry's clips that I used to build that video. It's maybe five or six minutes just of his clips. And then you can see the, the ones that were taken for the final cut of the video. That's available to Patreon subscribers as well, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. Thanks so much for your support. If you are a Patreon subscriber, you make this possible. Recapping the list really quickly, my first foray into the greatest off-ball players of the three-point era, focusing on their peak, of course, if that wasn't clear throughout. Number 10, a young Dirk Nowitzki. Number 9, Anthony Davis of recent vintage. Number 8, J.J. Redick. Number 7, Peja Stojakovic. At six, Rip Hamilton, five, Clay Thompson, four, Ray Allen, three, Larry Bird, number two, Reggie Miller, and number one, Steph Curry. Otherwise, that is it for this episode. Uh, Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. And as always, wherever you're listening in the world, I hope that you are having a great day. (laughs) 